Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us today, and happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners in the United States. Um, I am very thankful for all of our thousands of listeners uh, of this show and of our podcast. And uh, as we are in our fifth year of The Nonprofit Coach, Thank you for joining us and learning with us. Uh, today we have an extremely important topic, and, and we, we do cover a lot of very important topics here on the Nonprofit Coach. But I think when, when you stack up those things that the average development officer or nonprofit executive has skills in, I don't think winning federal grants would rank very high. So my guess is that the reason that we uh, have so many people uh, joining us for uh, today's show, and of course, uh, as the uh, announcer uh, shared with you. You can call in and ask questions of our guests when we get to the page two uh, portion of the show by dialing 347-324-3080. You can also join us over in the chat room. I see some folks over in the chat room. You can ask questions there. Or you can email us at tedhart at tedhart.com. And I think uh, just about everybody would love to learn how to win more federal grants to support their nonprofit mission. Um, it is complicated. It is uh, often not easy, and that's why we have the top experts here with us as guests on our show. Cheryl Kester and Karen Cassidy will be joining us as our Page 2 experts today. But as always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with Page 1 News. Each month here on the Nonprofit Coach, we have one of the experts from CFRE, the Certified Fundraising Executive um, International Office, with us to share with us what is new, what is going on, and how you can become CFRE certified uh, with the CFRE Minute. Welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach, George Hamilton. Hi, Ted. Thank you very much for having us again. Hey, George, always a pleasure. You folks always have so much going on. And, of course, certification allows our listeners to stand out in the crowd, to stand for uh, exam and to show their expertise uh, to those who may not know how to measure expertise in this area. So uh, take it away with the CFRE Minute. Sure. Well, last time we were we were on the show, we talked a little bit about some of the uh, updates that are coming to the CFRE program for 2016. Um, we talked about how the the minimum years in practice is actually being reduced from 
years to three years in order to be eligible to sit for the exam um, and complete your application. Uh, I do want to stress for, for your listeners, though, that that in no way um, equates to a dilution of the exam itself. The exam will continue to test at the five-year level of knowledge and practice. Um, so I want to make sure that that was clear for all your listeners that while you know we're, we've reduced the years required in order to be eligible, that's a reflection of really the advanced preparation that more and more fundraisers are coming into the profession with already under their belt. From a, yeah, I was I was from going a, to say you know, I think that program or something like that. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I, I just when you announced that before, I just think that's such a brilliant move um, because, of course, it's the entire application that's going to be looked at, and it's the preparation. And sometimes, you know, just waiting out the clock to get to five years doesn't make a lot of sense because fundraising is moving at a faster pace, and what it takes to learn and to be uh, an expert, um, you can't wait five years now uh, to, to right. be an expert. So I think that really is a, a very smart move, and I'm glad that you pointed out that it's not – a delusion, uh, uh, not uh, uh, disillusionment of the requirement because the expertise still must be there and the demonstration of the expertise must still be there. It's just a recognition that in 2015, 2016, you may have reached that by three years. Exactly. And really, we want all the fundraisers who have the knowledge and experience to to meet the the requirements for application and an exam to be able to get the credential um, and and you know both set themselves apart as a, a fundraiser who has demonstrated their mastery of of those core bodies of knowledge and best practice um, but also to to further enhance the the whole sector's understanding of how the credential um, represents best best practices in in fundraising practice. How would you say that the announcement has been uh, received overall? I think overall it has been received well. Um, the reason I did point this out, though, was that we, we did hear, hear some comments back from folks that, that felt like um, the reduction in years required was, was you know, in some way undercutting the value of the credential. And I, I just want to assure folks that that is not the case. The, the application requirements in terms of, you know, the professional performance um, that a fundraiser has has um, achieved in their career has not changed, um, nor has the nor has the exam level at which one is tested. So it, it's really just a, a recognition that that people are coming in with a greater degree of preparation than they were 20 or 30 years ago when when the credential was founded. That's right. That's right. That's right. What else is going on as you're looking into the the new year? Um, well, that, that's the big thing. I mean, we are uh, we're looking at another year of, of growth for the credential. I mean, obviously the the final numbers are not in, and and candidates are continuing to test in test window four um, and achieve their CFREs. So um, we don't have the final numbers, but it's it's clear that there's going to be another year of growth in the credential in terms of number of of people who hold the CFRE credential and also growth um, internationally for the credential. Um, so those are both very positive things. Where are you seeing international growth? Um, really, Europe, Australia, um, Canada as well. All the numbers have gone up in all in all those countries, um, particularly continental Europe. Um, you know, it's it's the, the credential is still um, you know getting a foothold in terms of of recognition for its value and and what it represents for the for the community. But I uh, I think that the the real focus on on ethical fundraising that that we've seen in the in the EU um and particularly in the UK um since this summer has really shined a spotlight on on ethical fundraising practice and the CFRE credential really does provide that assurance to employers and donors alike um that that the person who holds the credential um has you know made a commitment to ethical fundraising practice well, you continue doing a fantastic job. The uh, I think the uh, sort of the new face of CFRE and the expansion of the CFRE credential uh, is important uh, to all fundraisers. And of course, here on the Nonprofit Coach, as always, we encourage our listeners to go to CFRE.org to learn more about the credential and how you can prepare to sit for the exam and to show your expertise to others who may not know how to evaluate your skill, CFRE can be that determining factor. George Hamilton, thank you for being our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach and bringing us the CFRE Minute. We look forward to having you with us next month.
Yep, great. Thank you very much. You bet. So uh, next up here on The Nonprofit Coach, we have another good friend of uh, The Nonprofit Coach, and that's Linda Lysakowski. Linda is uh, with uh, the uh, uh, the folks who uh, are putting out new new books all the time. Uh, Linda, thank you for joining us uh, here. You've got uh, uh, a new book for us um, that we're excited to uh, to hear about, and this is part of the In the Trenches uh, series uh, that uh, that you folks are developing by at Charity Channel Press. So, Linda Lysakowski, welcome here back to the Nonprofit Coach. Well, it's great to be back, Ted. It's always good to be on your show, and as we get ready for Thanksgiving, I. Counting as my blessings, one of the things that I think I'm thankful for is all the people like yourself that are in this profession and so willing to share their expertise and their um, knowledge with with everybody else in this field. So I'm kind of thankful for that as we go into a, a great holiday season ahead. Linda, a lot is not really written about the inner workings of federal grants. Um, I, I, I often refer to it as fundraising by the pound um, because the applications and the, the materials that are needed, um, you know, can be so dense. Um, so why did Charity Channel Press take this on and, and encourage these wonderful authors that you're going to introduce to us um, to write this book? Well, I think one of the reasons um, that I was so excited about this book is I have to confess, in all the years I've spent in fundraising, one thing I've never really done much of is very, very little of, is federal grants. And when I read the proposal and as I was reading through the book, and, and there's also an accompanying workbook, which is a fantastic package of the two books together. But as I was reading through this, I thought, well, thank God I never had to do federal grants because, frankly, I'm just, I think it's so overwhelming to people. But what I really liked about this book is that Cheryl and Karen made it easy because they They've got everything so well organized, and everything just flows into each other. And I thought when I was done with it, you know, if I did have to make a living doing federal grants with these book and workbook by my side, I think I could muddle through it, even though I really don't like all that, that paperwork that's involved. As you said, it is seems to be by the pound, and I think, boy, I don't have the patience for it, but I'm so glad that these two do, and I think this is a real contribution to the profession that they're taking a, a task which most people, frankly, like myself, I think, run screaming from, and they make it easy enough that we can all pick it up and, and do it if we just have the patience and, and the knowledge that these these two books provide for us. So I'm really excited to introduce Karen and Cheryl. I think they've done a fantastic service to the community by putting this book together, and I think the federal government may be overwhelmed with a lot more grants than they've ever seen before. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, you hang on right there. We're going to just turn the page here, move on over to page two, and then uh, you can stay with us and do the formal introduction of both uh, uh, Karen and Cheryl. So uh, stay right with us. We will be right back after we turn the page. Over here on page two, we have Linda Lysakowski uh, staying with us for just a little bit to make the formal uh, introduction of Cheryl Kester and Karen Cassidy. So I'm uh, bringing them in uh, from the switchboard. So they're with us right now, Linda. The three of you take it away. Linda, make the introduction. Okay, great. Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on introductions because I think they have such great material in their book that I know they want to share with you. But I really admire both Karen and Cheryl because they've tackled something that a lot of people are afraid to tackle, and that is federal grants. They've both been doing it for years and years. and Not that they're that old, of course, but they've been doing it for quite a while, and I think their books are really an eye-opener. They were to me because they've taken a subject that is just so mysterious to so many people and made it really readable and doable for all of us. So I think we owe two of them a great deal of gratitude and thanksgiving for all they've done for the profession and i'm going to turn it right over to cheryl and karen and let them tell you a little bit more about why they tackled this book and why it's so important to the community 
Terrific. Um, before you ladies get started, I do just want to make sure that our guests know uh, Cheryl Kester is a CFRE and is principal at the Kester Group, a grants consulting firm specializing in assisting education, nonprofit, public safety, health care, and county municipal clients across the nation in winning state and federal grants. She has helped secure, now sit down and watch, wait for this, $123 million plus in funding from grants and contracts. The firm also serves as an external evaluator. She is co-author of the book that we're talking about today that Linda Lysakowski just introduced, and that is winning, uh, Writing to Win Federal Grants and the accompanying Writing to Win Federal Grants workbook, uh, which are both published by the Charity Channel Press. And Karen Cassidy is joining us, and she's a principal of Government Grant Professionals, LLC, a firm focused on the successful development, management, and evaluation of programs in the education, healthcare, and human service and public sectors with more than 24 years of experience. Uh, wait for it, she has raised in excess of $250 million for projects benefiting communities around the globe. She is a member of the Grants Professionals Association, GPA, and presently sits on their board of directors. So Cheryl and Karen, thank you for writing this book, and thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Well, thank you for having us. We are really pleased to be with you today. This is Cheryl speaking. Um, it's really interesting. I think this was a real alignment of a need in the field because both Karen and I, as Linda said, have been doing federal grants for a long time now. We've been teaching workshops, and we've been teaching workshops to our fellow grant writers. Many grant professionals who had been in the field longer than us would come up to us and say, I've been doing grants for 15 or 20 years, but those federal grants, they just scare me. And what happened, Karen and I didn't know each other, but we both approached the publisher, Steve Nill, at Charity Channel Press at the same time with the concept for this book. And thank goodness he had the wisdom to put us together. And because of that, because you had both of us on this book, the content is so much stronger and the breadth and depth of experience mm -hmm. wider and deeper. Well, it's one of the benefits of Charity Channel Press is that they, they do bring people together um, for really incredible how-to uh, books. Um, so, Karen, I, I, I wondered if you might um, sort of weigh in on my little quip with uh, Linda earlier that, you know, I often uh, look at uh, federal grants as fundraising by the pound uh, because the applications can be so large and dense and the, the number of attachments um, is so incredible. Um, how true is that? <laughs> Actually, it's not really that true. I have had the federal proposals where they've been 1,300, 1,400 pages long, and you begin to think to yourself, I'm never going to get this done. But I know Cheryl and I have both written federal proposals that have had severe page limits, sometimes as little as two pages with no more than five pages of attachments. Um, so a lot of wow. people think it now, is how is that grant writing by the pound. <laughs> Yeah, well, how you have to really write tight. <laughs> yeah, I um, imagine that's true. And it, you know, part of it is the way that they structure the RFPs, um, and they do give you, you know, I remember when I was in high school, and a teacher used to say you have to write five pages double spaced, and I would groan and say, "How will I ever fill that?" And now I look at that and go, "How am I ever going to get that done um, in that short of a space?" Because you have so many components that you have to explain. Right, right. Well, th this really is a soup to nuts uh, book, and I wanted to, in, in sort of reading through the book, which is at, at times heavy um, in that it's there, this is complex. But one of the things that I came away was this uh, overarching sense that, unlike some other grants, um, this is a whole organization approach. If you're going to win a, a, a federal grant, this isn't just something that gets written in some side office, but you really have to know yourself from top to bottom and really be willing to be transparent if you're going to truly win. Yeah, and one of the this is Karen again. One of the challenges with federal grants is that Cheryl and I both get phone calls from people all the time who think that there's a giant money tree in Washington D.C. and if you just go shake it, money's going to miraculously fall on you. And that's not exactly the case. You are right. You have to be very organized. You have to be very detail-oriented to write these federal proposals. Um, Cheryl and I both make tons of checklists. 
I know we put several samples of them in our books uh, just so that people can understand we do everything from budgeting, how we're going to write the 65-page proposal and divide it up into the various sections to um, checklists to determine whether or not you really have the capacity or you, this is really the right fit for you to go after this federal grant. I think Cheryl and I probably talk our clients out of going after many federal grants just as often as we tell them, hey, you really need to go after this one. Right. How um, I'm wondering, Cheryl, um, from just from the, the, the get-go, how many federal grants are truly open for review and how many of them are sort of funding the same charities year after year because the agencies know that that group? You know, it really varies. It actually becomes a joke in our workshops because our answer is always it depends. It depends on the funding agency. Larger funding agencies like the National Science Foundation or the Department of Education have multiple departments within the agencies. They all do things differently. They all may have many multiple competitions. But a really um, good indicator, one of the easiest ways to, to do a quick check, do I even have a, a snowball's chance in you know where of maybe getting this grant is – most federal grant opportunity announcements will tell you how many awards do we anticipate making. And if that number is one or two, unless you're already that one or two, that's really not a good opportunity for you to apply. If that number is 38 or 65 or 110, suddenly your chances of winning that um, competition are a lot stronger. Then the next part of your question was, are the same people getting them over and over? In some programs that are set up that way, yes, but even in those instances, most of the time, the previous grantee has to meet performance standards, and they get points that say whether or not they met their previous objectives and spent their money appropriately. And so aside from a few little points, they get a few little extra points for prior experience. The playing field is usually pretty level. Looking back at um, the way that you put this uh, um, this book together, um, you started off by um, suggesting that you have to be ready to approach a federal grant. So I- I'm gathering needing the money is not enough. Absolutely <laughs> no. Not. And we talk about readiness in two categories. Um, it's really common, and, and a lot of grant books do this, and we do too. We talk about your readiness to write a proposal. Do you have the people with the knowledge on your staff and the time to get this done? But just as important, probably more importantly, is are you ready to properly implement a federally funded program? In other words, if you have an annual budget of $75,000 a year, it is very unlikely you have the organizational capacity to suddenly run a $300,000 a year program, just as an example. And I know Karen has more examples of organizational readiness. Well, and some of the things we always tell people to look at is, do you have the appropriate staff in place to actually manage the grant? Do you have the financial software necessary so that you can appropriately segregate funds so you can bill appropriately? There's a lot of different steps that we really go through with our clients and Go, you know, go walk them through it and say, does this make sense for you? Does this not? We oftentimes will tell the small organizations who call us just about daily and want to go after some of the funding on the money tree, we tell them that they really need to partner with other organizations who have the appropriate experience, who have things that they can bring to the partnership that make the application stronger. Um, it's not In some programs, it's very common that just one organization is funded, but in a lot of programs, it's really based on those strategic partnerships and making sure they can provide the comprehensive services required. Mm-hmm. And, and so, again, the, the, the ability to have the infrastructure in, in place, how much of a weight uh, should our listeners be putting on that kind of preparation, uh, given the, the fact that, as you said, you know, there may be small nonprofits out, of, out there who are looking to you know, possibly uh, um, you know, want to move in this direction. Are they just out of the running, or is it possible for them – uh, to to actually consider um, making this work. 
They are not out of the running. We really encourage potential applicants to to right-size. So the example I gave was if you're a small nonprofit, you know, you don't go for the giant grant. But there are $10,000 grants available. There are $5,000 grants available. There are $80,000 grants available. And so um, actually we make – it's available in our workbook and also as a free resource we just – we had distributed it via our website and in our workshops. We have a, a readiness checklist for your organization that you can go through. And it's kind of in priority order. And we basically tell you if you go through this list and have a bunch of no's, then you need to work on those things before you're really going to be ready to implement a federal grant. If you have a lot of yeses, then, then it's time to start thinking seriously about pursuing a federal grant either on your own or as part of a coalition of partners. How would you go about putting together a coalition, and, and does does that signal more readiness, or does it signal more readiness if I have everything in-house? No, actually it doesn't signal more readiness if you have everything in-house, because 30 years ago nonprofits tried to be everything to everyone, and they discovered that that didn't work didn't work very well in their communities. So they started looking at what their core capacities were. What is it that they do really well? Well, we tell them to go one step farther than that. We tell them to look at who their natural partners are already because chances are if you're doing any type of programming in your community, you have entities that you refer to all of the time. And those are the entities that make sense for you to partner with as you're thinking about pursuing federal funding. You have what I call your natural partners. Um, sometimes you have to expand on that list. And if you do, um, the time not to do it is when you see a really cool federal funding opportunity and you try and pull people together quickly and say, let's go after this. Those things usually don't work. You really want to work with well-established partners, if at all possible, maybe bringing in one or two new folks. But if you're having to gin something up every time, that's not a good idea. It never ends well. Well, let, let's sort of focus in on, on that concept because I'm I'm wondering, again, back to the issue of transparency and, and readiness, if this is sort of, uh, hey, let's put on a show, um, let's all get together and go after this, but if we don't get the money, we're not actually in partnership, we don't really have any natural work together, is that generally something that a federal grant is going to see through, or have you seen that actually work? Federal grants have a unique way of exposing all of the flaws you knew you had and some of them that you didn't want to admit to the fact that you have. Um, when I was growing up, my great-grandmother used to always tell me, "You begin the way you end is the way you begin. And so if you're beginning in chaos trying to pull this thing together in 30 days, which is literally the deadline that you oftentimes will have, um, you're not going to have a very smooth beginning then when you go to implementation, it's going to be miserable, and chances are you're going to lose partners as you go through the whole process with implementing the grant and closing it out and doing the audit and all of that. I really tell people in the strongest possible language to look at who your natural partners are, those referral partners that you already have, the folks that come into your organization and provide child care while you do parenting classes or whatever the issue is, um, and work with them Oftentimes, I also tell people, don't give yourself just that 30-day window of, well, the RFA is out, we got to gin this up quick. There are federal funding forecasts that are out there. You just simply Google them, HHS Federal Funding Forecast, Department of Health and Human Services Federal Funding Forecast, et cetera, and you'll find out about those things that are going to be coming up that are planned. And it is planned because it's part of the federal budget, and even though we have chaos in Congress oftentimes, there still is a little bit of a plan with the budget. Cheryl, what's and, your experience on that? My experience is, yes, you don't want to try to throw together a new partnership of people who have never talked together um, 30 or 24 or 21 days before an application is due. On the other hand, I have seen um, there are some grants that are structured for the purpose of helping 
community agencies develop new partnerships and new relationships, and those can work really well. Um, sometimes the grants will even tell you, here's who has to be in your coalition. You have to have three health care providers, one of whom has to be a nonprofit and rural, and you should also have a community service agency, and you should also have a county health department. And sometimes those inspire people to work together or to begin to develop relationships that they may not have thought of before or they just haven't gotten around to because they are so busy doing the everyday work of serving the people they need to serve. So does that lead to your concept of the grants dream team and what is a grants dream team? So the grants dream team really is about getting all of your internal partners together. There's a misnomer out there that, you know, we grant writers, we sit in our cubicles and we just gin the whole program up by ourselves and we don't need to work with others. The challenge with that is, is first of all, it creates silos within your organization, which is never a good thing. Um, but it really does take the full management structure of your organization, whether volunteer or paid staff to really put a grant together. You need your human resources department to help you understand what the salary structure is for a case manager. You need your finance department to help you put together the budget so you understand your indirect cost rates, etc. You need the buy-in of your executive leadership to say, yeah, you're right, this is a good thing for us to go after. So you really want to make sure you have complete agency buy-in because when you don't, it can be miserable trying to implement the grant when it's funded. And that comes across really clear in this book, and that, that's why I mentioned it early on in, in our discussion today, is this nature of this is truly a top-to-bottom uh, sort of grant writing, which I, I don't think is necessarily always the case with, say, a foundation grant or a corporate grant, which which may not have all those aspects. But th this does require really being self-aware as a nonprofit, knowing who you are, and having access to all sorts of data sets that are not necessarily that always that common in other types of grant writing. Well, and the thing you have to remember about federal grants is that they're often multi-year grants, and so it's not like you just start the program with the, you know, as you would a foundation proposal, you start it and you stop it from year to year, or you hope that the foundation continues it. Many times federal grants are two, three, four, sometimes five-year money, and so you're really married to a project for a long time. I wanted to ask um, how uh, you talk about prospect research, but this is this is arguably sort of a different kind of prospect research than researching a, a corporate grant opportunity or a foundation grant opportunity. What what is prospect research when it comes to government grants? You're right; it's completely different. Um, this is Cheryl speaking. So there were several. Um, tax you can take, but in general, as Karen said, most federally funded grant and contract opportunities, and a lot of state ones too, are planned out years in advance via the budgeting process, and the larger agencies usually do publish a forecast that say, here's what's coming down. There are free tools. There are two free federal government websites um, that um, anyone can access and search by subject, by keyword, by topic, and they can tell you this agency usually puts out an opportunity for, I don't know, rural housing. Um, and it comes out, and you can tell it comes out every two years or every three years or when was the last time. And um, that's one of the key methods. Um, you are not there are some also pay for, you can subscribe to some paid services. Some people prefer to do that, especially if they're really busy or they're responsible for 15 things at their organization. Other people say, I don't need that because I can find all I need free online. We also strongly recommend that you talk to other organizations like yours. So if you are a small Christian college, talk to other Christian colleges. What grants are they eligible for? If you're a rural health care provider, if you're a, um, a housing authority, that's one of the best ways to find out some of the, the federal opportunities that you are likely to be eligible for. It's more about – go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to ask, are religious organizations able to apply, or what kind of restrictions are there generally? Absolutely. Um, and we have a really nice um, story in our book that explains kind of a real-life example. But the very short version is, yes, you are completely eligible to apply, um, 
you cannot, of course, require someone to attend religious services or hold a particular religious belief to receive federally funded services or programs. But um, some of the really you, – you've got food banks, you've got soup kitchens, you've got ha- um, organizations offering housing, you've got Christian colleges that serve low-income students, you've got um, – all kinds of faith-based organizations building houses, for example. Um, we all are very familiar with that nonprofit. Um, so as long as you meet the requirements, they're not as stringent as most people think. Um, and they've got and the, the White House has an office on faith-based organizations that's really good at communicating what those requirements are. Are there any general restrictions at all, or are they always specific to the, the, the grant area? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, I, I, is anyone automatically restricted, or are the restrictions specific to the the grant that you're you're pursuing? So each grant opportunity is going to have a, the same place where it lists how many awards do we anticipate making. It's also going to list who is eligible for this competition, and that can vary dramatically. Um, sometimes for-profit companies are eligible to compete. Sometimes states and municipalities are eligible. Sometimes it'll say not-for-profits only. Sometimes it'll say faith-based organizations are encouraged to apply. Most of them don't really single out faith-based organizations because if you hold a 501c3 designation and meet all of the other eligibility requirements, then you should be able to be eligible. The only okay. big restriction that's out there is if you're federally debarred, which means you've – and if you're federally debarred, believe me, you know it. Um, it means you can't <laughs> compete for any federal money of any type. That's really the biggest restriction out there as to who wouldn't be eligible. But otherwise, Cheryl's right. It is by um, – it varies from RFA to RFA. What is an RFA? I'm sorry. It's requ- – it's uh, it, so some people call it the guidelines, some people call it requests for proposals, some people call it a funding opportunity announcement. It comes in many different acronyms, but it's basically the thing that says, hey, everybody, we're looking for proposals for this. So it's going to go by different names according to different agencies. It might say FOA, it might say RFA, it might say RFP. Um, they're all one and the same. It's just everybody has their own their own acronym. Imagine that in the federal government, right? Imagine imagine that. So we're going to uh, take a very quick break. Um, when we come back, I wanted to ask you um, how to break the cycle of scrambling to respond to a, an RFP, RFA, uh, in less than 30 days. How do you break that, uh, that, that cycle and prepare or work this into your work plan a little bit more in the new year? And we'll be right back. So I want to draw your attention, grab your calendar. December 8th is the big holiday show here on The Nonprofit Coach. Every year we end our calendar year, our production year, uh, with Kay Sprinkle Grace. She has been uh, our perennial holiday uh, wonderful guest um, to help you prepare for the new year. Uh, so this year we will be wrapping up our production schedule for 2015 on December 8th at 12 noon Eastern. Um, and then we will be on uh, holiday uh, for the show until um, we're, we come back on January 19th uh, with our live show. So Kay Sprinkle Grace uh, will be our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach on December 8th, so mark that on your calendar. And then, of course, you can always reach us at tedhart.com. Uh, you can uh, listen to all of our podcasts um, at, uh, at that, uh, that location. Of course, all of our podcasts are free. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here with uh, the fantastic authors of uh, this wonderful new book from Charity Channel Press, Writing to Win Federal Grants, a must-have for your fundraising toolbox. We have Cheryl Kester, CFRE, and Karen Cassidy, C, uh, GPC, uh, here with us. And uh, ladies, um, so 
how do you break this cycle of scrambling, which just can be very disruptive to nonprofits who, you know, sort of dangling out in front of them is, is potentially this very large federal grant. An enormous amount of work has to happen in a very short period of time. Is that just the way it is? No, actually it's not, Ted. This is Karen. Um, what we tell our clients to do is to look at the federal funding forecast for the agency that they're interested in. So if you're a community college, you know you're probably going to be interested in grants from the Department of Education, the Department of Labor, maybe the National Science Foundation, possibly a few others. And if you just simply Google federal funding forecast U.S. Department of Education, it will come up. You'll get a You'll get some information on the Internet, and it will tell you, well, we anticipate this is the approximate schedule that we're going to have for releasing these funding opportunities. Um, federal agencies don't just suddenly decide, oh, well, we're going to release this, this one today because it feels good. They actually have a schedule, a rough schedule that they follow. Sometimes Congress tinkers with that schedule because they don't pass funding bills on time. Um, but there is a schedule as to how things come out. And if you will make that part of your prospect research as you're looking for grant opportunities, you'll get an idea of, oh, okay, so I need to plan that Title V is going to come out here and it's going to be due roughly in the spring, so I need to begin working on that in January. Um, that will really help your organization a lot. Cheryl? Yes, I concur, and it's it's true that um, the longer that Karen and I have been doing this, and we both now specialize almost 100% on government grants, we start working m more and more in advance. So we actually both have some grants that we don't even know what the deadline is yet. We think it's probably anywhere between fe February and May. We've been working on them since probably August or September. Because yeah, so if that's you're the trying real key, isn't it? It's, uh -huh. it's, it's the planning ahead and it's it's understanding that, again, the, the full organization, all the data sets, complete transparency yes. in this application yep. is something that you really do have to have a sense of where you're going before you get to that 30-day window. Well, we're well, both strong writers, and writing is really important. It's it's really important for everyone to understand that the writing comes at the end. All these months that we're spending, we're not spending our wheels um, wordsmithing. We are spinning our wheels trying to find that one last piece of data. How do we confirm the poverty rate in this census tract? We're, we're making sure the partners will agree on how they're going to cooperate. When you're talking about, uh, for most organizations, a federal grant is going to be the largest single item of income they've ever had. And as Karen said before, it's probably going to be a program that's going to impact that organization for many, many years. That's why it's so essential that the senior, the top leadership understands, not just says this is a great idea, but understands it, advocates for it, gets everybody else, all the vice presidents or whoever on board. And um, it can take a long time to design a program if it's new to your organization and to determine how many people can you serve, what can the budget handle, how are we going to transport our students after school or whatever it is. And that's what takes um, months. And if you give yourself that kind of time, if you see a federal opportunity that comes out and you have, sometimes this happens, someone will email you a link and say, this is a great grant, and it's due in two weeks. <laughs> have we right. both right. done that? Have we both successfully responded to one of those before? Yes. Do we ever want to do it again? No. Usually <laughs> the best strategy is to look at that and say, you know what? We're going to get ready, and we're going to go for that next year. We're going to start planning now. Now that we have the guidelines, we know what the agency is looking for, we can start talking to potential partners. We can start building the buy-in internally, and three, four, six months ahead of time, we're going to start working in earnest so that when the guidelines come out, we are almost done. We are just making sure we fit the new guidelines. We're not starting from the beginning. The size of some of these grants can truly be game-changing for all the partners who are party to uh, to the grant, and the prospect of money uh, is often enough to bring people together. What are the pitfalls for the implementation phase, and how often do you see those rather new partnerships actually fall apart? Oh, I've um, not only have I seen it, I've also been part of it. Early on in my career when I did program work, um, 
somebody at the institution would decide this is a great grant to go after, and their development department would pursue the grant with not a whole lot of input from the program staff and then thrust it on the program staff to go out and implement. Um, and it was always, well, certainly gave me enough gray hair that I need Clairol. Let's just put it that way. Um, <laughs> And it, it, it's just it's miserable from time to time when those types of things happen. I'm a big advocate of organizations, if they're going to work together, they need to have a written document, a memorandum of understanding that says, this is how we're going to work together. The interesting thing I put in my memorandum of understanding is, and if we disagree, this is how we're going to settle our disagreements. Um, because I've learned through years of practice that once you start collaborating and working closely with another organization, it's really easy to start out as friends and go, yes, this is wonderful. We're doing this for the community, and it's great. And it's really easy to wind up basically in divorce court because you right. can't stand the right. side of each other. And, and I think that's all the more reason to plan ahead, take your time, make sure that those agreements are in place, because if this is going to be game-changing, you might be in that marriage for a while. Well, and the other thing is people see the dollar signs. Oh, the ceiling for this is $2 million a year. And they get those dollar signs in their eyes, but when they actually sit down and work through the budget, they find out how quickly that, whether it's 500000 or $2 million or whatever it is that sounds like the big number, it goes so very quickly. And it really isn't the money you thought it was. Um, it certainly helps a lot, but I know of very few federal programs where all of the needs are completely funded by the federal program. And what does the landscape look like? I mean, in 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 reality, how much money is out there? Is it growing? I, you know, I think you know we see things in the the popular press. We see chaos in Congress. Um, is this is this partnering with chaos? The landscape. Um, well, I have, I have to say, I haven't actually sat down and added up how much federal money is available. I'm not sure that's even possible because it's a constantly moving target. In general, this is a overgeneralization. I'm not a policy expert. I, you know, Karen began her career um, on the Hill, and I'll let her follow up and make sure I'm saying the right things here. But in general, we are seeing um, shrinking federal programs. We are seeing some programs that have been around for decades being reduced in size, merged with other programs, some of them eliminated. Um, whenever there's a change in administration, priorities can shift and change. So just for example, President Obama has been a very strong advocate for community colleges as being important links in the educational change. He's funneled through the years, through Congress, a lot of money to community colleges. A new administration may have slightly different priorities, and so that while the total pot may not shrink tremendously, where the money becomes available can shift. What we, so what we, the kind of the joint message we want to always send is, it is possible, don't give up, but also there's no reason for you to spin your wheels for something that's not a best fit for your organization, because it is so competitive. And it is so competitive, you have to have an A-plus paper. You're not turning in your C-level work here. Um, we as we've explained in our workshops and in the book, most, most federal grants are awarded based on a point system. And we're seeing cutoff scores of 103.5 points, 98.6 points. That means you can't lose a point, and if there's any opportunity to earn something they might call bonus points or competitive preference priority points, you need to try to get those points too. Even if you've had that grant for 30 years, it is not a guarantee you'll get it next time if you don't earn every single point. So it is more competitive. It's not the case that a lot of folks are just saying, hey, it's just not worth it. It's just too complex and too competitive. I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to put the effort into it. I wouldn't say that – I don't hear that a lot in my consulting practice. What I hear in my consulting practice too often is – we really need to make sure that we go after this and that we go after this strongly. We feel like we have a strong position to pursue this funding. We have good partnerships. We have a solid base on which to build for this program. Um, the organizations that are going, this is too complex, I can't possibly do it, are the organizations that are new. I get phone calls 
almost daily from the new nonprofit of the day that has cropped up, and they want to pursue federal funding because they've heard that's the way to stabilize their programs. Um, and it's true. Federal funding contributes a lot to organizations to help them achieve their missions and do good things in the community. But if you're a brand-new nonprofit, it's not for you. Because it does it does take organizational structure and legitimacy to be able to get. So the flavor of the, the month kind of charity, while they may desire this, how much are they really in line for winning these kinds of grants? They're not. Um, they're, where they need to go after funding is from individual donors, from small community foundations who are willing to invest in their work, that type of thing. Um, as Cheryl said earlier, if you've got a – $75,000 annual budget and you want to go after a $1.3 million a year grant, you're not competitive because you don't have the organizational, you can't illustrate that you have the organizational capacity to suddenly manage this large influx of cash. I want to turn our attention in the, the time that, that we have left in, in a slightly different direction, and that is sort of now I've got the grant, um, the evaluation process for these grants is a whole new world if you have really been used to uh, sort of standard foundation or corporate funding. That's Federal right. Grants. The evaluation plan, well, okay, so there's two levels of evaluation. There's what you said you would do in the evaluation plan part of your application narrative, and that's where you said we are going to measure success by this. What percent of students who received our tutoring increased their math scores, as an example? However, the funding agency who gives you the grant or the cooperative agreement, which are becoming much more common, or the contract, often has its own additional reporting requirements. There's probably an online system into which you have to enter data, maybe quarterly, um, financial data, and performance target data. They may be conducting their own evaluation. So they're under a lot of pressure from Congress and their secretaries to demonstrate the effectiveness of their programs. So they may have an outside firm coming in that's evaluating all of their grantees. So it is really important to understand how much data you're going to have to collect, how much time you're going to have to spend dealing with the agency that's given you the grant and the reporting requirements that are going to come with it. It's also really important to understand that if you compete for a federal award and you get an award notification that says, congratulations, you have the grant, here are the terms and conditions, sometimes it's better for your organization if you read those terms and conditions to say, oh, my goodness, this is going to break the bank, or we can't afford this. Sometimes you need to turn it down. That's actually better for your organization in the long run than trying to implement something that will cripple you financially. In, and in I've actually worked with organizations. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to Go say, ahead. I've actually no, worked ahead. with organizations where they got the grant notice award, went through all the terms and conditions, saw that it was a cost reimbursement basis. They put the money out and then they would get the funds in. They didn't understand that going into the grant, and they said, we don't have the cash to float this, or we right. can't meet certain requirements of this, and they've actually turned the money back. Right, right. Which, in in a lot of cases, depending on the funding source, can be the right decision because, you, particularly if uh, there's likely to be a change in uh, regulation, you could end up not getting reimbursed or having to settle for a lower rate of reimbursement. So, taking that into consideration, often because I've worked with a lot of nonprofits that, you know, their balance sheet looks good because they're owed a lot of money, but they have no cash. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of states right now are having problems passing budgets. I live in Missouri, and I work with clients in Illinois. Illinois hasn't had a budget since July 1st, and I'm really not convinced they're going to get one this fiscal year. Um, so I have organizations that have many state contracts that they don't know if they're ever going to get paid. And of course, where does that money where does that money come from? So, but the the data collection, the the amount of information that you need to know and be tracking about yourself. We've talked on this show many times how a lot of nonprofits really are not that self aware, are not tracking. They sort of are, you know, give us money, we do good work. Look at the good work that we do, but actually evaluating that, measuring that, and showing outcomes is a whole new world for a lot of charities. 
it is a new world for a lot of charities, but there are a lot of organizations that have been reporting outcomes to United Way and other other places for years, and they're accustomed to doing that. Um, the funny okay. thing that I see is that organizations are really good at reporting outputs. We had so many people come into the food pantry. We gave away this many pounds of food, that type of thing. But what they're really bad at is reporting the outcomes, and sometimes they don't understand the difference between an output and an outcome. An output is the widget of service. The outcome is the impact of that service. Um, right, and impact and is so, a word that's used in so many different ways. How is impact um, often becoming part of a government grant? Federal organizations, federal agencies across the entire federal landscape, they have to report to Congress. They have to say what the impact is of the federal funds that were made available. And so they are requesting that you report your outcomes. The nice thing about it is, in most cases, you get to set your outcome targets yourself. Um, You get to say, hey, this is what makes us successful rather than the federal agencies saying to you, you must achieve these specific metrics in order, to, uh, in order to say that you've been successful. So Cheryl and I always tell our organizations that we work with, your evaluation plan in establishing your outcomes, that's where you get to decide what it is that makes you successful, how you're going to measure organizational success. And we work with them to establish as simple as we can, ways for them to articulate what their impact is, ways to articulate what their outcome is. The other thing is is that most federal grants will pay for you to have some type of an evaluation done. Um, They will provide some level of funding, and so you just have to decide if you're going to evaluate it internally or externally, or if the, uh, the funding announcement, the RFP, says to you, you have to have this evaluated externally, and then you budget for that accordingly. So bottom line, uh, Karen and Cheryl, this is very serious business that you need to be prepared for. If you want to win federal grants, you need to go for it, and it needs to be a whole organization, top to bottom. Uh, So we have four minutes left, uh, and this time just goes by so fast. I wanted to ask each of you in the time remaining to just give us your tip on what is the most important thing that you should know about competing for government grants or your best tip, and then uh, make sure that you tell my audience how they can reach you. So why don't we start with Karen, best tip for success and how to reach you. So my best tip for success is to make sure you're as organized as you possibly can be um, and to not call me and say, hey, there's a grant that's due December 15th and I want to go after it because my answer to you is probably going to be, I'm sorry, I'm booked. Um, So if you're going to work with a grant consultant, uh, go out and find that federal funding forecast. Start soon and don't delay. Um, how you can reach me, I have a probably the best way to reach me is um, through email, and that would be um, Karen at governmentalgrantspro.com. Or um, certainly, if you take a look at the, the book, there's our contact information in there. Cheryl and I partner together on a lot of different types of grants and proposals and work together often. Um, so, reach out to either one of us, we're always happy to answer your questions. Terrific, Karen and Cheryl. Best tip, and how can my audience reach you? From I think the best tip is it aligns well with Karen's, and that is make sure that you focus on if this is your first time one federal grant that is a slam dunk perfect fit for your organization. Don't waste your time trying to make a square peg fit into a round hole. Um, and we give we have a free assessment tool. So we we talked about this. They're in the workbook, but we make them available um, on uh, they're available on my website, and they're coming. We are about to launch a Writing to Win Federal Grants website that should be available after the holiday. Um, these are f- a free download. One is an organizational self-assessment tool. So that's larger. That goes to Karen's point. Is your organization ready to do this? The second one is an RFA assessment tool, and that's a per-funding opportunity. You've got a really exciting grant opportunity in front of you, and this helps you assess, is this the right fit for my organization? Is this the one we should go for? And so if you make a good choice that's a good fit for your organization, you have a much, much higher chance of success. And if you've been successful once, you're going to be more motivated to try again. Um, the and you'll have the infrastructure to, re- to be able to support it. 
and the infrastructure to support it. Right, and that organizational self-assessment tool helps you assess that. It asks some of the most important questions about that before you decide to go for a particular grant. Um, Terrific, and how can my guests uh, reach you? Um, I have a website that's the Kester Group, I'm sorry, just KesterGroup.com, or you can reach me on Cheryl, C-H-E-R-Y-L, at KesterGroup.com. And as Karen said, we are really committed to the profession. We want to grow the capacity of our fellow grant writers and our nonprofit organizations. There are way more federal grants than we can write, so we are very happy to answer questions. Um, another good point, Karen said, don't call me on November 23rd and ask me to help you write a grant for December 15th. But what you could do is call her on November 23rd and ask her to help you write a grant for next December or help you find the right next opportunity December. if you don't have right. the capacity to do that. Good planning, terrific book, and thank you to Charity Channel Press uh, for uh, providing us with the opportunity to learn from Cheryl Kester and Karen Cassidy in writing to win federal grants. 2016 will be a bright year for anyone who gets this book, so we encourage you to do that, and everyone have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.